You are listening to a sermon from Linworth Road Church. For more information about Linworth Road Church, please visit www.linworthroadchurch.com. So will you stand? And I'm going to read this passage. If you want to use the text, the Bible in front of you is page 868. I'm going to start at verse 1 and read through verse 24 in Luke 10. And then we'll, we'll pray together. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead of him, two by two, into every town and place where he himself was about to go. And he said to them, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Go your way. Behold, I am sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals, and greet no one on the road. Whatever house you enter, first say, Peace be to this house. And if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest upon him. But if not, it will return to you. And remain in the same house, eating and drinking what they provide, for the laborer deserves his wages. Do not go from house to house. Whenever you enter a town and they receive you, eat what is set before you, Heal the sick in it and say to them, The kingdom of God has come near to you. But whenever you enter a town and they do not receive you, go to its streets and say, Even the dust of your town that clings to our feet, we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near. I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more bearable in the judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You shall be brought down to Hades. The one who hears you hears me, and the one who rejects you rejects me, and the one who rejects me rejects the one who sent me. The 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. In that same hour, he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father, or who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Then turning to the disciples, he said privately, Blessed are the eyes that see you... See what you see, for I tell you that many prophets and kings desired to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Father, help us to absorb every lesson this morning that you have for us and every (coughs) gift that you long to give us this morning. Help us to be ready to hear, ready to receive. 
ready to learn. In Christ's name, amen. <coughs> okay, you can be seated. What I'd like to do this morning is break this down into three sections. The call, the message, and the temptation. First, the call. Remember back in Luke chapter 9, Jesus appointed the twelve to a mission. And Pastor Pete did a great job on that message. I'd encourage you to go back and listen to it uh, if you have the opportunity. This is really sending 2.0. And yet, there are many more following Jesus. Here, Luke records 72. Other manuscripts say 70. Now, that number does have some meaning to it. One, many believe this number harkens back to the 70 nations listed in Genesis chapter 10. Around 2200 B.C., this is known as the table of nations. And the list represented the descendants of Noah, the entire known world at that time. Now, one piece of evidence to support this is that Jesus clearly has an abundant harvest on his mind. Beyond the immediate towns they are traveling to. Now, when he says harvest, he has an agricultural picture in his mind, and it's his way of talking about souls. Souls he knows will say yes to the gospel message. But there's a challenge. There is a disproportionate number of workers. Imagine a ready harvest, uh, ripe, ready to be picked, but there is nobody to work the fields. Now, in our time, of course, this is long before there was an international harvester combine that could comb through the field in a short time, one machine doing the work of about 100 people. Yet this is still the true state of the world as Jesus sees it. So even in their sending, even in the sending of the 70, Jesus invites them to pray for yet more workers. So the future harvest will extend beyond the nation of Israel. We see hints of that even here in this sending. For example, Jesus instructs them to eat what is set in front of you. Why would he say that? Well, this may indicate that their outreach would extend to non-Jewish towns or to Jewish places with loose practices. The disciples would need to eat things they were not accustomed to. Things they regarded as unclean. Now, eating, of course, is a big deal, right? When we uh, send teams and organize teams to go overseas, one of the first questions, and one of the questions that is always asked is, what will I eat? And certainly, those of you who have been overseas on one of our teams, we've eaten some crazy things. Buffalo stomach, uh, various parts of the chicken. Well, what is Jesus doing here? Even in the manner of eating, in a common thing like that, He is stretching their hearts. He is stretching their comfort zone. If they are in the home of someone without their religious scruples, they need to have a flexible conscience for the sake of the gospel to see a difference between what is major and what is minor. 
For this to work, the disciples' part, for their part, they may have to climb over some religious and ethnic barriers that they previously thought impassable. Now, another reason for the significance of this number is that it is six times above the disciples. It shows us that all of us are witnesses. All of us have the call to go. All of us have the authority to proclaim and pray for healing. It's all given to us. Now, what else can we expect from this passage? Well, there may be danger on the mission. Go, Jesus said, I send you out like lambs in the midst of wolves. You cannot expect a welcome in every place. There will be rejection. Now, personal safety, of course, is very important. Yet, should it be the determining factor in ultimately going or not going, Jesus sends them into some risky scenarios. Is he still doing so? Are people today any less valued by him than they were then? You know, for many Christians around the world, they are very familiar with living among wolves. They daily live with the pressure of danger, of knowing they are being monitored, of knowing imprisonment or job loss or harassment from the government is a real possibility. This is Jesus saying, go, I send you. This is the call. And 2,000 years later, it remains the call for every Christian to be his witness, to spread his story around the world, to share his story with every human being. And sometimes it will still mean rejection, maybe even danger. Honestly, this is not a Jesus we are comfortable with. Living in the affluent West, we are all tempted. It's not just some church out there that believes in the prosperity gospel. All of us are tempted to marry the gospel with the American dream, where Jesus functioned as an insurance policy against danger and trouble. Yet here, this very text challenges that picture. He is sending his friends into potential danger. A lot there to think about for us. And there are other instructions as well. He wants them to be mobile, to be flexible, to be dependent on the people they are serving. Uh, those being ministered to spiritually would respond in kind materially. This creates a kind of a dynamic of mutual dependence and responsibility. Uh, there's a sense of urgency in Jesus' instructions. Greetings. He, you know, he, Wow, does Jesus not want them to be kind? He says, if someone greets you on the road, just keep going. It doesn't sound very kind. What does that mean? Well, greetings in the ancient world could be long. They could be superfluous. They could be time-consuming. Jesus is not saying don't be kind. He's saying don't be distracted. Stay focused. So you see, all of this possible danger, opportunity for rejection, discomfort, away from friends and family, potential for failure, complicated social situations, all points to the fact that being on mission involves a sacrifice. Today we often think of mission being easy or being glamorous. 
If we wait to go, if we wait to go for Jesus until we anticipate that the danger is gone, the welcome is certain, success is ensured, discomfort is eliminated, we will never go. We won't go across the street, let alone go to the other side of the world. There's a lot there for us to really think about. This call that Jesus made 2,000 years ago, how do we translate that to a call today? Let's look at the second part, the message. First the call, now the message. What is the message that Jesus gives to his messengers? Look there again at verse 9. Let's go back to that. And re, let me reread that. Chapter 10, verse 9. It says, Heal the sick in it and say to them, The kingdom of God has come near to you. It's a pretty basic message. The kingdom of God has come near to you. What is the kingdom of God? We've talked about this many times. The kingdom of God represents what happens to a heart to a family, to a community where God is invited to freely rule and reign. Where God is king. And Jesus embodied the kingdom of God in a person. Jesus embodied the power of God. Jesus embodied the presence of God. And if He draws near to you, you are having the closest disclosure of God you could ever possibly have. Jesus is the source of life. He's the wisdom of life. He's the ultimate reality. And He is in your midst. He's close enough for you to touch His skin, to see the twinkle in His eye, to hear the inflections of His voice. Jesus is the end of every quest of life for meaning. Every quest for life and for meaning, albeit a lover, a philosopher, a poet, or a scientist. Jesus is the end of that search. This is, if, let me, if I could, just take a little parenthesis from the core of our message because it's here in our text. This is why Jesus draws out a distinction in the severity of judgment. Did you pick that up as I read? This is worth spending a moment on. Look at, again, verse 12. I tell you, it will be more tolerable on that day for Sodom than for that town, the town that would reject the disciples. Sodom was an ancient city in Genesis. It, is a, like a, it holds kind of a mythological status as being a place where God uh, judged severely. And so the audience certainly knew what was meant by that. But Sodom did not have the same level of disclosure or exposure to the works of God than these very towns would have. They did not know as much, not as much was revealed to them. These cities whom Jesus will visit and will do the mighty works of God before their very eyes, they have seen the kingdom of God up close. Therefore, they have a greater responsibility. People say today, why doesn't God just reveal himself? Have you ever asked that question? Why doesn't he just tear off the mask and make himself abundantly, unquestioningly clear? Well, he did. He did in the person of Jesus. 
And yet, even so, he was rejected. So, it's not an evidence problem. It's a heart problem. And um, here's the principle. The principle that Jesus is enunciating is this. The greater the revelation, the greater the opportunity. The greater the opportunity, the greater the responsibility. The greater the responsibility, the graver the rejection. God is a just judge. And the level of revelation matters. You know, the Bible speaks of an eternal destiny for every person, heaven or hell. And that message elicits a burning question for many. What about those who have never heard? A question I know many of you have wrestled with, a question that I wrestle with. What will happen to those who never heard of Jesus? This text perhaps can shed some light on that question. I encourage you to reflect more deeply on it. So, let me go back to the main part of my message. What is the message that Jesus gives them the authority to proclaim the kingdom of God has drawn near? Now, don't miss this as well. What is the demonstration of the message? It's not just cognitive, but it's visceral, it's experiential. It's, 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 a, it's a full life proclamation. What's the demonstration of the message? Jesus taught about the kingdom of God, but he also demonstrated the kingdom of God through action. And the 72 were given authority and were commissioned to heal. Now healing, the body does three things. One, it alleviated suffering so as to reveal the compassion of God. Two, it revealed the supernatural power of God, that God was alive and real. And three, it was a signpost of the future kingdom, meaning that a healed body was a picture of what will happen in the future to the body when the kingdom of God comes in its fullness. Now think of the function of healing. Think of the function of healing. Healing means to mend something torn apart, to connect something fractured. Jesus certainly has the healing of the body in view here, undoubtedly. But to heal has other implications connected to the coming of the kingdom of God. For it is not just our bodies that need healed. It is our guilt and shame that need healed. Our spirits. It is our marriages that need healed. It is our families and communities that need healed. And when God comes near, there is a healing. There is a mending. There's a reconnecting. There's a stitching together of divided strands. Turn back in your Bibles, if you would, to Malachi chapter 4, verses 5 and 6. Malachi is the last book of the Old Testament. It's page 803. It'll be on, on the screen here, too, page 803. Malachi 4, 5, and 6. I'll give you the context as you're turning there. Again, page 803. Malachi is talking about the great day that the Lord comes. 
And God's people here that he's writing to or speaking about, speaking to, they have been wondering if serving God is really worth it. And it seemed like those who didn't serve God were way better off. And Malachi's audience needed to know that there was a day coming when God will judge every wrong and he will make visible what is just and right. And so he says this, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. Before the great and awesome day of the Lord, before that day comes. I know it reads a little chunky. And he will turn, look at what will happen when that day comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to the children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. Now, it was because of this prophecy here that the Jews in the day of Jesus were eagerly expecting an Elijah, a new Elijah. Who did Jesus say that Elijah was? We learned about this way back in chapter 3, that John the Baptist was that Elijah. He prepared the way for me. What does it mean when the Lord comes? Now, we can argue about what that means exactly later at a later time. There's lots of interpretations on that. But for the moment, I want you to capture the broader meaning of what happens when the Lord comes. When He is near, what takes place? There's a mending. There's a reconciliation. There's a healing. Then the prophet chooses a powerful symbol of reconciliation. The hearts of fathers are turned to their children and children to their fathers. When the Lord comes, mended, when the Lord comes, there is mending, families are restored, and the heart of the father turns to his son and to his daughter. Now I want you to put everything else aside. Political division, geopolitical conflict, wars, racial strife, poverty, nothing else in this life has had a more significant outcome of the, on the human race than the relational breakdown of fathers with their children. Let me say it one more time because it's a mouthful. Put everything else aside. Political division, geopolitical conflicts, wars, racial strife, poverty, nothing else in life has had more significance on the outcome of the human race than the relational breakdown of fathers with their children. That is the very symbol that Malachi chooses to use as a way of talking about what happens when the Lord comes. Healing. Mending. Restoration. The kingdom has come near to you. Now, what I'd like to do, I'd like to take a little bit of a message break here. I know you're a little bit tired of hearing me talk. We're going to hear someone else talk in a British accent. It's going to be hard, it's going to, be hard to hear but there is a, or hard to understand, but there is a script. I want you to hear the story of a man named Gram Seed or Graham Seed. This is from the Alpha video series that we are going through. Alpha will be referenced in the video if you're not aware of it. It is a course of study to help non-Christians understand the basic claims of Jesus. 
There's two parts to it. Let me tell you the first part, and we'll watch the second part in a moment. In the first part of his story, Graham tells of his upbringing and the terrible things that he saw his father do to his mother. And the terrible person he became describes himself as being anti-authority. At age 15, he murdered someone and was sent to a a detention facility for, for teens. That only worsened him. He became a fighter. Uh, He calls himself a football hooligan, which I'm not quite sure what that means, but I know it's not good. He tells in his story that his mother was embarrassed embarrassed by him. His mother said he was a son of Satan. His mother said he was worse than his father, which only made him angrier since his his father did terrible things to his mother. He described himself as evil, sheer evil. And years later, he found himself on the streets. Let's listen to the, his story. Since then, that's what I've done. I've gone. I've told people what Jesus is. I've run hundreds of children out of hell. 
Wow. Isn't that a great story? You know, if that story was a year old, I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have shared it. It was 19 years ago. And uh, so the, the story of his life that continues really authenticates what God did in his life. Powerful story. You know, part of his story is someone proclaiming that the Lord is near. Part of his story is someone praying for healing. We too have the authority to speak, friends. We too have the authority to pray for healing. And we too can be agents of reconciliation. I'd love to finish right there, right? It'd be a great, great place to finish, but let's go to one more part here, the final part of our message. We've done the call to go. We've done the message. The Lord is near. Heal in His name. And now finally, the temptation. Can't lose this last part. It's really important. The temptation. Verse 17 tells the story of the disciples returning. And Jesus takes advantage of this opportunity to do, do a debrief. What lessons are learned? Now there's some confusing things here. Jesus says, He saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. What does that mean? I think one thing we can know for sure is that as Jesus' new kingdom is thrusting forth in missionary work, the heavens are shaking. The work accomplished through this sending anticipates the death blow given to Satan at the cross. Satan's demise, the reversal of evil, was made final through Jesus' victory. Though Satan's doom is sure, today, in our age, in the church age we live in, Satan is still seeking to overthrow God and his work, even though his final destiny is a certainty. You see, the Bible grounds the origin of evil in a holy alliance, an unholy alliance, of three different forces. Our sinful nature, the world, and the devil. This is where it's relevant today. Satan still remains a source of much evil in our world. Serpents and scorpions, referenced here, were not literal, but they were symbols of evil. Satan's power is still understood and appreciated through much of the world, though his power is underestimated in the West. As to the mission itself, as to the missionary work itself, for many of us, 
missionary work seems so small, whether again it's locally or globally, I'm using it in a broad term, whether locally or globally, mission work seems so small, so insignificant, when we compare it to the influence of multinational corporations or the political power of Washington or the star power of Hollywood or the fashion prowess of Miami or even the impressive crowds at an Ohio State football game. Mission work seems so small and so uninfluential to us. Can I suggest to you that we have it all backwards? The heavens shake when those sent by Jesus do His work of proclaiming and healing. Yet, even given that, the turn Jesus takes next is totally surprising. Look at verse 20. Nevertheless, it's an important word, by the way, even though the heavens shake when you proclaim the kingdom, nevertheless, don't rejoice in it. Don't rejoice that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. What, Jesus? You just told me that heaven shakes when I proclaim. Now you're saying don't rejoice in that? Where is he going with this? Well, he's not saying, Jesus is not saying, don't be unhappy about what you accomplish. Certainly, he's not throwing a wet blanket on the 70. He's not turning this happy moment into something shameful with a severe scowl. But rather, he is cautioning them from landing in this place where they see the work as the source of their highest joy there is a higher joy than seeing demons tremble and it is it is that your names are written in the book of life now what is the book of life again the audience knew it this was not new to jesus there was an old testament book of life that was actually was used in ancient culture outside the bible Sam Storm writes about what this book is. He said the Old Testament book of life was a register of the citizens of the community of Israel. To have one's name written in the book of life implied the privilege of participation in the temporal blessings of the community, while to be erased or blotted out of this book meant exclusion from those blessings. In other words, the book had reference to the rights of of citizenship for the Jewish people. Turn to Exodus chapter 32, if you would. Exodus chapter 32. Page 72. And it'll be on our screen as well. I want you to see this example now with Moses and the Jewish people. Here in Exodus 32, it is after they crossed the Jordan River, they're into the promised land. It's after the giving of the Ten Commandments. The people had grown impatient with Moses, and they began to worship a golden calf. And with all of that came the orgiastic and the terribly wrong behaviors connected to pagan worship. 
This is the scene Moses finds when he finally comes down from the mountain after his sacred meeting with God. And look at how he addresses this the next day. Exodus 32, beginning in verse 30. The next day Moses said to the people, You have sinned a great sin. And now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make an atonement for your sin. So Moses returned to the Lord and said, Alas, Lord, this people has sinned a great sin. They have made for themselves gods of gold. But now if you will forgive their sin, but if not, please blot me out of your book that you have written. What's going on here? Again, realize that Jesus is using this as a way to, he's bringing it up to the age that he lives in, the idea of a book of life, to describe not being a member of the citizen of Israel, but being a member of the kingdom of God. And being a member of the kingdom of God, that is our true source of joy. Not the relative success of ministry, which goes up and down, ebbs and flows. Do you remember all the leadership lessons that Jesus gave at the end of chapter 9 to the disciples a long, long time ago in our study? The leadership lesson of their lack of power because they couldn't free that poor boy who was demon-possessed? Or their lack of unity because they were arguing about who was the greatest? Or their small-mindedness since they wanted to be the only rodeo in town and discourage other followers who were not aligned to them? Or their lack of compassion when they wanted to torch that Samaritan town? Now Jesus gives these disciples and you and me another vital leadership lesson. Find your primary joy, your security, and your identity not in the work that you do for me, but in being my daughter or son. When the ministry goes south, when others are far more successful, when challenges are overwhelming, when you're too old or sick to work for me, this understanding of how I truly see you will serve you well. You know, it is possible to love ministry too much. It is possible to love ministry and have no intimate connectedness to Jesus. We love its dizzying impact. We love the exhilaration of being used by God. We love the applause that sometimes comes. We love the veneration that others sometimes assign to you. But in the middle of serving God, you can lose the childlike love for Jesus that is mentioned in His extraordinary prayer. You know, many of the little stream beds right now that feed into uh, the Olentangy along 315, many of them are bone dry right now. It's been very, very dry. It's nice to get a little rain this morning. Southern California has recently broken from a long, long, decades-long drought. And what was baked and brown and dry and cracked is now has had a resurgence of life and vegetation and green and, and vibrancy. Ministry is like that. There are seasons of growth and seasons of flourishing, and there are seasons that are dry. And it seems like the harder you work, the less that happens. But our sonship with God, but our daughtership with God has a staying power. It is our constant. 
It is not vulnerable to the constant ebb and flow of ministry results. God does not love you. He does not love me in a utilitarian way. He does not love us for what we can produce primarily, but He loves us for who we are. Who we are is more important to Him than what we do. I believe that is the lesson that Jesus is giving here to His disciples, even as they were seeing dizzying things happen in the kingdom of God. Don't rejoice in this, but rejoice. Take your joy, take your security, take your identity that your name's are written in the book of life. Lastly, to prepare our hearts for communion, go back to the story of Moses, if you would. Chapter 32. Did you capture what happened there? You capture the heart of Moses here? What's he saying by asking God to blot out his name? What's he saying by saying, I can make... Can I make atonement for their sin? Moses seeks to offer himself in the place of his people. Please forgive their sins, God. If not, then let me take their place. Yet if we read on, how did God respond to Moses' offer? God rejected Moses' offer. One, God said the guilty should die and not the innocent. In this case, Moses was innocent. Yet there was another reason why Moses' attempt at atonement was not accepted. He was not actually guiltless. <laughs> Moses was guilty, as we'll see if you just were read a few chapters ahead. You would find that Moses himself, too, was a sinner, and Moses was unfit, unworthy to make atonement for the people. In other words, one greater than Moses had to come. And indeed, that was Jesus Christ, who was innocent, who was guiltless. He, too, offered to make atonement to the Father and to offer His life as a sacrifice. And His death was accepted. And we know that to be true because of the vindication demonstrated through the resurrection of Jesus. It is because of His sacrifice that our sins did not result in our names being erased, our names being blotted out from the book of life. That is our ultimate reason for unbounding joy and unabashed joy, like a subterranean river that never stops flowing. It's a source of constant joy and meaning to our lives, what Christ has done. Let's remember Him as He told us to do in the taking of the bread and the taking of this juice, symbols of His body and His blood. Band, you can come on up if you would, Summer and Faith and, and uh, the rest of the band. We're going to take communion together. We're going to remember Jesus. We're going to remember the sacrifice that He made this morning. We take the bread it represents His body. When we sip the juice, it represents His blood, the forgiveness of sins. Jesus said, take this as a reminder of the new covenant, the new promise that I've given you. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you.
the taking of the bread, and the taking of the juice, we remember His covenant, His promise, eternal covenant, His eternal promise to us that He will never, ever forsake. When you uh, come up this morning and the ushers will lead you uh, row by row, take the bread, take the juice, and then when we all have it together, I'll come back up and we'll take the bread and we'll take the juice together as an entire united body under Christ. Again, communion is for uh, us who, uh, uh, for believers who uh, confess Jesus as uh, their leader and as their follower. If this morning, if you've never made that decision, you can make it right now. You can ask Christ, the Lord of life, to come into your heart in the same way that Graham C. did. Come into my life, Christ. You can do it this morning and celebrate communion with us. And uh, if not yet, it's fine. Just observe what takes place. Observe this, uh, this ritual for believers. It's a part of what we do as followers of Christ. And uh, we hope that you'll learn and gain from it as we take it. Let me give thanks. Father, we thank you for the bread and the juice, the symbols of your love. And now we respond to you through singing, through the, through the statements of what we believe. Lord, we sing to you what we believe. We sing to you our heart's desire. We sing to you our suffering. And we offer it to you, Father, as a pleasing sacrifice in Christ's name.